religion, culture, and curriculum, and the importance of the curriculum to a society. The dictionary definition of education is that it is the impartation or acquisition of knowledge, skill, or discipline of character. This means that the function of education is to school people in the ultimate value of a culture. Educators try to pass on to children that which they believe is most important for the individual's future and society's future. They are thus communicating their faith in what is basic for life. Now, when secular education, humanistic education, leaves out scripture and leaves out God, it is saying that our faith is irrelevant to the future. Education is inescapably a religious task. In any society, anywhere in the world, education is a religious task. Whether you study the Hindus, or the Hopi Indians, or the Americans, you will find out what they believe by analyzing their education. Then you will have their real faith. Today, supposedly, over 15 million people in the United States are professing born-again Christians. But when you analyze their faith, you find that it is not the Lordship of Christ, as Mr. Tenpass has so clearly shown in his beautiful study thereof, but it is man who is paramount in their thinking. When the state takes over education and makes it non-Christian, it is disowning Christianity and is disestablishing it for another religion, humanism. If you want to know the religion of any society or any people, study their education. Not only is education in its foundation, religion. But the educational curriculum expresses religious standards, a religious faith, and the religious expectations of a culture. Every institution, whatever it is, is religious. Church, state, school, family, every institution is religious, you see. We cannot limit the idea of religion to a belief in God. Religion can be pure humanism, and almost all religions are humanistic. But every religion, man in all his ways and all his doings, is religious. And a Christian is a Christian in all his doings. 
And every institution, every area of society he touches must be under God. This means not only his idea of worship, but his idea of work and rest, of peace, of education, of all things. The curriculum of a school bus is a religion expressed and communicated. Every curriculum is a religion expressed and communicated. Literally, the Latin word from whence we get the word curriculum, and which appears in Latin without any change of spelling from our English word, means a running, a race course. The curriculum is thus the chariot, the race course, the vehicle whereby a person goes from a beginning point to a goal. The basic curriculum is called, as we have seen, the liberal arts curriculum. Liberal comes from the word liber, free. The art of freedom. The liberal arts curriculum is thus the answer a religion gives and a people give to the question, what is liberty? How does a man prepare himself to be a free man? Or, if you want to state it in other words, how shall a man be saved? How shall a man be saved? That's what the liberal arts curriculum is about. How shall a man be saved? As a result, the liberal arts curriculum develops the means of freedom, of salvation, of preparing the whole man for what constitutes true religion, the life of freedom and faith. It is a means of salvation for the children of the society. Every public school curriculum is a plan of salvation for the children. It seeks to save them from what the society regards as evil, threats, and gives them the skills to meet life triumphantly. In other words, it is a religious task very clearly, very emphatically. Now the origin of our modern liberalized curriculum is in Greek humanism. One of the problems with Christianity through the centuries has been that most of the time it has worked with an alien curriculum, one borrowed from the Greeks, not revised much since then. Greek humanism was not individualistic in that respect. We have altered it, but as far as its basic humanism, we have not. For the Greek, the basic unity was the polis, P-O-L-I-S, the city-state, from which we get the word politics. Greek education concentrated in literature, on Homer and life writing. What does Homer give us? Heroes. 
A-T-R-O-E-S. A religious term. <coughs> what are heroes? Heroes are divinized men. They are men who realize the potentiality of all men to be gods. And so their function in education was to tell pupils, imitate them, be your own god. The heroes are the real gods of Greece. The Greek gods are all divinized heroes. Zeus or Jupiter and all the others were once real men who died. Several cities claimed that Zeus had been their man, lived there, and they could point in one case to the grave of Zeus. <clears throat> in the Greek curriculum, dancing and gymnasium were very important. Why? Not for physical exercise. Because physical exercise is a Christian concept of the body. But in order to engender enthusiasm, what's enthusiasm? Very literally, this word from the Greek means to be God-possessed. To be God-possessed. So that with your activities, you built yourself up to a frenzy, the God-possession. Physical development, when they stress muscle building and exercise, had as its function not health in any essential sense, but the perfection of the divine humanity of man, the perfection of form, man's divinization. Man was to be the incarnation of universal forms. Similarly, geometry was studied not so much because it might be useful, but essentially because geometry was supposedly a contemplation of the divine form in creation. The abstract forms of the universe. It was a religious subject. We still keep it, don't we, in the curriculum. The only people, almost the only people who ever use the geometry they get, and I enjoy geometry, are those who are going to teach it. Who else ever uses geometry? Only a very few people. But everybody has to study it. Because it was in the Greek curriculum for religious reasons, it's still in our curriculum. Civics. Those of us who are older had civics which was a religious subject because in a society that said the state was everything, to study the polity, the form of government of the state, was a religious thing. And so we require that everybody take a course in constitution, but not in the Bible, because we are thereby witnessing which is more important. If we said that we studied the Constitution in order to further our Christian citizenship, good, but then we would make the Bible basic to the curriculum. Thus, the 
content of the curriculum, one subject after another, in terms of the classic liberal arts curriculum, has reached final salvation. The Romans took over the Greek curriculum. They kept it basically, but they added a word to the language of education and of life. They spoke of the pious man as one of the goals of education. What did they mean by the pious man? By the pious man they meant the one who was under subordination to authority, ultimately the authority of the Roman state. So historically, piety means subordination to the human authority, basically that of the state. Christianity, of course, from its inception came into conflict with the world round about it. There was very quickly a battle between Christ and Caesar, two rival gods. There was a battle between the city or kingdom of God and the city or kingdom of man. A battle for control of the world and history, and it's still the basic battle. Unfortunately, however, when the Christians triumphed, they did not change the school. They merely took them over. In effect, they baptized them and called them Christians. The result was, very quickly, as Bishop Otto Freising said in the Middle Ages, I quote, I seem to myself to have composed the history not of two cities, but virtually of one only. The two were intermingled because as they educated people, they brought together the faith, the word of God, and the word of man. The liberal arts curriculum of paganism. You can't do that. You destroy what you're trying to accomplish in education. The Renaissance, therefore, was the result. The Renaissance said, what we studied requires us to promote man's freedom, man's divinization, some are ready to say. The Reformation reacted against that in terms of the word of God. But the basic humanism of education triumphed. For a time, here in America, almost alone, the Christian schools were truly Christian in the colonial period. In fact, in the earliest days of the universities of this country, the language that was required was Hebrew and Greek after that, which indicated, of course, that they saw the primacy of not classical learning, but of the Word of God. Progressively, however, the pagan liberal arts curriculum took over in America. The Christian schools were seen as the enemy by the Unitarians. And in the person of Horace Mann, they waged war against the idea of Christian schools. 
man is the father of statist education in this country, of humanistic education. As a Unitarian, he saw Christianity as the evil. Charles D. Sumner, one of his associates, senator and abolitionist, spoke, as I mentioned previously in one of our other meetings, as of a biblical faith as the certain coils around our children. And to have true education, that is, true salvation for children as a Unitarian, he believed that biblical faith had to be destroyed. As a result, liberal art, as humanism has developed, has come to mean, as we have progressively seen in our various meetings, and especially in our previous period, freedom from law, existentialism, man's anarchistic freedom. No truth exists in this perspective but man. The only true word is man's will. The basic idea thus of the liberal arts curriculum of the state schools is anti-Christian. We must therefore deny it and we must remake the curriculum. We will deal very specifically with some subjects next week, or next month at our next meeting. But consider the curriculum today, how obsolete it is. It teaches us things that the Greeks thought were important, and it neglects things that are basic to our everyday life. Consider economics. Never all the way through grade and high school do you get economics. It's not required in most colleges and universities, which is perhaps for the best considering the kind of economics they teach, because it is humanistic, socialistic economics. But economics is something that everybody deals with every day of their lives. How to handle property, money, the use of time, the use of materials, the exercise of dominion. Economics is basic to our life. And who ever studies economics? Is it any wonder that people live incompetently, that they cannot manage their affairs? When I was in the pastorate, I found that it was not sex, but economics that was at the root of most marital problems. The inability of couples to handle money. Thus, economics should be basic to the Christian curriculum. One of the things that South Eden hopes to do is to produce a Christian textbook thoroughly and rigorously scriptural for the teaching of economics in Christian schools. Ed Powell is working on that right now. 
consider another subject. Again, one that is never taught. Law. Every one of us lives in a world of law. First, there is family law that we're born into, because the Bible teaches us what is required, what is the law for children. Church law, school law, economic law, civil law, God's law, and whoever studies law. Can you imagine economics and law that we want to deal with every day of our lives? Nobody ever studies it? I talk about education being obsolete and irrelevant. But education is supposed to be relevant to the needs of life. Humanism is committing suicide because its concept of education is not dealing with everyday problems. Its faith is not able to face reality. And this is why we need to develop in terms of Christian schools new subjects that are realistic. Hopefully, sometime in the future, we can have a textbook in law for grade schools and high schools. No, it's sometimes startling to find Sunday school children who've gone all the way through high school and rarely miss the Sunday who can't tell you the Ten Commandments. That is true. We shall be dealing with history at one of our subsequent meetings. The issue in history is a very important one. How is history determined? By God or by man? Consider the term Middle Ages and Dark Ages. They're ready to admit there were no such things there was no such thing as a dark age. Historians called it dark because Rome fell and Christianity triumphed. And they call it the Middle Ages now because that was kind of in between that blessed humanism of the ancient world and the revival of humanism of the Renaissance. And everything between was just a nightmare, you see. And you and I, according to them, are still living in the Dark Ages. As a matter of fact, the term Dark Ages was coined by Christians to apply to everyone who was living outside of Christ, and that's the proper usage. We're living in the Dark Ages right now, all over the world, because humanism is in control. Consider another subject that is becoming very popular and coming down from the colleges and universities where it is required into many high schools. Psychology. This replaced theology. Theology was once the queen of the sciences, basic to every subject. Now increasingly psychology, the study of man is replacing it, and anthropology. But psychology and anthropology only have a place and the Christian frame of things is branches of theology. 
God's word determines what man is, anthropology, and God's word determines what the mind of man is, psychology. Or the sciences. We as Christians must say there is no such thing as science. Science does not exist. Sciences, various organized bodies of knowledge do. But what can you call science and comprehend within it all things that are called sciences? Similarly, there is no such thing as a religion in general. There are specific religions. Again, ecology has to be rescued. It's getting more and more placed in the curriculum from the humanist and seen in terms of God, in terms of his word. God created all things. And he gave all things their place in the world. The current natural history has a very interesting article on the Sisi fly of Africa. It's always been regarded as a great evil, but this article says it has been the preserver of a vast portion of Africa, which the natives otherwise would have turned into a desert because the cattle growers would have moved in, the natives with their cattle, and they would have destroyed that land. It could not take cattle. But the sea flies kept cattle out. And the land has been presented millions upon millions of square miles from destruction. I was telling my wife earlier this evening that for some reason or other, the bumblebees have been very active this week, perhaps because of the very lovely weather. I've never been partial to bumblebees. They grow about that big here and are really enormous things. But I rescued about a dozen of them from the swimming pool this week. Why? It's some kind of a principle with me to save those bumblebees. The reason is that I read not too long ago a statement by a scientist saying that the bumblebee was the one bee which had no other use whatsoever. And I don't believe it. I don't believe God created anything useless. And when we find what God's purpose in creating the bumblebee was, we'll find that it has a place in his purpose and plan. Now, it may not be something I like, it may have no place in my purpose and plan, and personally I'd rather the bumblebee kept his distance from me. But God has a purpose, you see. So we have to rescue ecology from a man-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective. The curriculum must be thus revised and rebuilt. I believe in the next generation we're going to see the Christian schools pull away from the curriculum of the secular schools more and more and begin to revise and add, drop and substitute and create progressively a Christian curriculum.
This is one of the things that we hope to do here at South Season, as the Lord provides the funds and we find men like Ed Powell and others who can begin to write the textbooks, do some of the basic research and thinking so that we can create a thoroughly physical concept of one subject after another and in terms of it, rebuild the curriculum. The curriculum of the public schools is true to itself. It teaches that man is his own God. A Christian school to have a Christian curriculum must in every respect set forth the glory of God and his sovereign purpose into all things and the preparation of man for the service of God, the glorification of God, the enjoyment of God, and the exercise of dominion under God. Of course, it involves practical problems of change. It won't come overnight. The schools are tied to a degree to college preparation. But I believe that you're going to see in the not too distant future new colleges developing. Old ones being revived. Some of the biggest and most important universities in the United States, which had long waiting lists a few years ago, are now having to go out and beat the bushes to get students. Why? The same students are going to small Christian colleges, which have waiting lists now. Is there at all good? The reason is the total breakdown that humanistic education creates is leading more and more parents to say, why should I put out eight or ten or twelve thousand dollars a year? to have a faculty blow out the brains of my students and turn them into a hoodlum. I believe, therefore, the whole of the college scene is going to be changed. You see, in the 50s and 60s, the Christian grade school came into being in a massive way. The Christian high school is now beginning to boom, and the Christian grade school is still growing rapidly. The next step will be the remaking of Christian colleges. And all the while, you're going to see changes on the great school level. A great deal has happened already. When I first wrote my two books in education, it seemed as though I were a wild man, that was 20 years ago, to make the kind of statements that I did. And intellectual schizophrenia and then subsequently in uh, messianic character of American education. Now they don't seem at all wild anybody, but it's very logical and sensible. And now I've been doing some writing for some years on the idea of a Christian curriculum and so on, and I will be teaching a course at a college in Florida this summer on the subject. I'm getting an audience on it. Why? Because there is now the need for it, the demand for it, and we are only seeing the beginning. As a result, I think we're going to see vast changes, alterations of the curriculum, 
perhaps the shortening of the Christian school year, perhaps a year-round school may develop too. But changes we can barely begin to imagine. The initiative will go from the state school to the Christian school. One state school officer told me a few years ago that their curriculum was now so loaded with requirements by the state and so high bound by the state that they were bound hand and foot and could no longer exercise any initiative in education. And so although he was not favorable to Christian schools, he felt that progress and initiative would take place in this area. There was freedom there. Not the same kind of money, not the same kind of facility, but freedom. The ability to make changes and to develop and to grow. This is why I believe the future belongs to the Christian schools. The humanistic schools are destroying children. A Christian school offers true liberty, and as it develops its curriculum, it is going to gain and pass. Are there any questions now? Yes. When we go back to the colonial era, we find that the Christian school then had very often a short school year. For example, a teacher or a group of teachers would have a circuit of schools within a relatively limited distance, so that, let us say, someone living in Ione would have school there three months, then after a break of a month would go over alone if they were it was a small farm area or two or three teachers to another area, maybe ten miles away, and hold school there for three months and then to another, and so on, you see. In that time, it would be a highly intensified course. They would concentrate then into that span of time far, far more than we teach now. In fact, the academy in those days, and right up to the time of Horace Mann, your high school, in other words, was one summer session for college preparatory students. During that time, you were to master Greek and Latin and your math and a great deal more. You see, there was a totally different concept of teaching and of the ability of the child to learn. He worked. Now, what's happening? Well, uh, some of the Christian schools that have been in existence now for about 20 years and have had the right kind of leadership and have progressively stepped up their curriculum, amazing things have happened. I know one school that has a one-week session at the beginning of every school year in which they have an outside speaker uh, to give them 
two or three hours of lectures each morning, and then in the afternoon they have sessions, the purpose of which is to see how can we improve the teaching and teach more, step up our teaching ability. But the net result is that in one of these schools, the children now are completing all of what is required by the public schools by the 10th grade. They're knocking off two years, you see, from education. Now, that has not come about overnight. It's taken about 20 years to reach that point by stepping up the curriculum. By, for example, making kindergarten a place where they go through the third grade McGuffey Reader and get some simple arithmetic and start the study of German as well as other things. Now, it takes time, you see, to develop your curriculum that way. However, as time goes on, they will be able to step up the curriculum further and shorten the number of years and the number of days a child can, has to be in school. We'll get back to what was once the situation in this country, where by the time you were 20, you were out of school, you were a man, you went into your work. Today, a sizable part of your life is gone before you're finished with school. If you do any extensive schooling, you go to the university and graduate school. In Europe, where they require a very extensive type of graduate school training, a great many men are in their mid-thirties before they're able to marry. As a result, in Europe, it's not uncommon, in fact, it is almost commonplace for any man who's had any extensive education to be married to a girl who's about 15 or 20 years younger than himself. Because by the time he finishes his schooling and gets out, gets started and makes a little money, he's getting close to 40. Now, you see what has happened to education. We stretch it out more and more, and we teach less and less content all the time. Now, when you have a Christian discipline and a Christian curriculum, you'll begin to get more content. You'll have better order. You all know that if you have a class that is orderly and well-behaved, you can teach far more. All right. Add to that a disciplined background from Christian parents who are products of Christian schools, and you will, with each generation, step up the competence of those pupils to learn. So, I predict that the Christian schools are going to be so far ahead that before another decade or two, anyone who goes to a public school will be regarded as uh, Dumbo. Already in many Christian schools, increasingly and more and more, it is a problem when you take a transfer from a public school over to the Christian school. He is undisciplined, he doesn't know how to study, he hasn't learned much. You almost have to reteach him. Now, Fairfax Christian School, for example, uh, Mr. Thilburn finds that 
for any of the junior and senior high transfers, 90% of them he does not even interview. He rejects them over the phone. Out of the 10% of the best who apply, he takes his pay. If he took them, they wouldn't fit in. They would disrupt the class because the students are too far ahead. Now that's already true, I know, in some of your schools. Your problems are the kids who are let in, who are transferred. And if your school improves, it's going to be increasingly impossible to take any of those transfers. Any other questions? Let us look ahead to the future and say, we've been able to shorten the school year to four or five months in the next 30 years. I'm just taking arbitrary figures. What is the child going to do in the other six or eight months of the year? Well, he can step up the pace of learning and go to school further and finish at an earlier age. Or, Depending on his family situation, he may be a help to his father and learn something by working outside. And this used to be the case. So that by the time he finished, he had a trade, he had a skill, he was closer to his father, or he was apprenticed out to somebody, he learned a trade or a profession, or he could just keep going to school and, uh, Graduate earlier. Yes. I know something when I became a Christian, I almost completed college, and you know, I didn't really learn that much, and mm-hmm. I really started learning a lot when I became a Christian. I just gave it all up, and I learned about a lot of different things. And what do you think is essential for, you know, as far as maybe a so-called college education? Like, I just saw a lot of stuff that people waste of time. Yes. Most of what I got at the university was a waste of time. Uh, that's such a big question to answer. What is essential about a college education? First of all, and I can only answer that in a general way in just a few moments, what is basic is that there be a focus. Now, you began to learn when you were converted, you see. Your life now had a focus. College education, universities do not have a focus. They are miscellaneous subjects. There's no focus. Hence, there is no meaning to the various studies and disciplines. And each man who teaches is concerned only with a subject, not an interrelationship. You can only have that interrelationship if you have a systematic theology. Because then you see all things are connected one to another because God is Lord over all and all things have meaning because His creation 
is a world of total meaning. So, we must, first of all, have a focus, and the school must have a focus, the college must have a focus. That focus will come when theology is again the queen of the sciences. Universities are not universities now, it's called, called Kurosaw. He spoke of the need to call them multiversities. Why? There's no focus, no center, no meaning. It's just a multiplicity of subjects. And the one thing that is taboo, you could have anything but that, is theology. Who said that this is a universe, one God, one faith, one world of law, one world of meaning. And see, unless you have that, unless theology is the queen of the sciences, you can alter the college and university curriculum endlessly and it still doesn't mean much. Nothing has a focus. You provided it with your conversion. Suddenly, there were pieces of a jigsaw that fitted together. And we were anxious to put the pieces together, anxious to reach out and get this or that fact, this or that body of knowledge and keep things together and have a coherent perspective of the world under God. Yes. Um, I really appreciate what you said about theology at the center of, you know, mm-hmm. our studies and, you know, I've taught in Christian schools and I've tried to say that, you know, and they look at me as only four years old in the Lord and, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew I knew a lot of theology, but, and I could see how theology related to everything and they told me, you know, I was studying this and studying that and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if I got out for lunch. Mm-hmm. And you being a more mature man and older and you've been around a lot longer, um, you know, I told him like they had concerns in government and concerns in this and concerns in science and I told him that, you know, because their theology is on minimum and not communist, they're never going to do anything yeah. for the Lord. Yeah. And then could you explain to explain why Armenian theology can't, can't do anything? Yes, Arminian theology cannot do anything because having denied God's sovereignty and predestination, it denies systematic. What is systematic? The fundamental presupposition of systematic is that every area of life and thought, every moment of time, is under the absolute government of God and has meaning in terms of him. So that there is a necessary coherence. Okay, there. There is a necessary coherence between every fact in the universe and every other fact. Then you're not studying miscellaneous subjects. You're studying all things from the perspective of God is the Lord, and every area of life is a revelation of Him. Now, when you have systematic things hang together, uh, William Butler Yeats in his famous poem, The Second Coming, how many of you know that? Well, his idea is that there is a second coming now of the beast. 
and he speaks of the beast barking to the new Bethlehem waiting to be born. He sees nothing but horror ahead. Why? The center is lost. Things no longer hang together. Now, without systematics, nothing hangs together. So that when Arminian theology steps in, it still talks about God, but it has accepted the humanistic worldview in which it's miscellaneous facts. Last week I was speaking somewhere, and I was speaking before a particularly brilliant group of people. And someone wanted to know how it was that I made the connections between things so well. I said, it's very simple. If you begin with the sovereign God of Scripture, if you have a systematic theology, then all things hang together. They have a logical necessity to them, and you begin to see the connection. Now, that's the problem with people who don't have this faith. They don't see the connection between theology as the queen of sciences and the various subjects. For example, I mentioned Poetus and his uh, studies on math and their necessary connection to the doctrine of the Trinity, to the biblical doctrine of God. How you cannot have math if you don't have that faith. Now, you tell that to some people and they look at you blankly. In fact, when I mentioned Poetus articles in passing when I was speaking to one ultra-fundamentalist college, the math department and the students became so outraged. They were so insulting subsequently that one of the senior faculty members told me later they were going to be disciplined because they were so outraged at it. Why? Their whole view of reality was shaken, you see. They were basically humanists. That's what came out. They didn't want the God who was Lord of all. The God who determined mathematics. They wanted a math in which man is Lord. And that was the issue that came out. It really shocked them there at the school. I don't know whether they smoothed it over after I left or what happened. But that was what came out very clearly. Yes. Could you explain to us what you mean by systematic theology? Like a lot of people today don't see how systematic theology actually interrelates. And, uh, you know, they can say, you know, they study one aspect of theology and, or, and they don't see how that aspect of theology, like the doctrine of predestination, relates to every doctrine or the doctrine of atonement. to every um, area of theology, and then, you know, so we want to get all messed up and they try to do anything practical. Correct. Perhaps it can be put this way. If you don't have a systematic theology, you have a smorgasbord theology. Now, I enjoy smorgasbord, so don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning them. I'm condemning smorgasbord theology. In such a theology, you go along and say, I like this idea. Now pick this up. My answer is, now pick that up. And so you talk to some people 
we have a small bit more theology, and one moment they're scriptural, and the next moment uh, they are Hindu. And the next moment they're Buddhist. And they're actually defended, and they say, such a beautiful idea, such a beautiful thought. I found ministers who claim to be Bible-believing who take the statement, really, right out of Hinduism. And they'll use it. And you say, oh, well, God could manifest himself through Hinduism. And it really is such a beautiful thought. It's very narrow-minded to condemn that, you see. They don't realize that in buying that thought, they bought another religion. So they got a smorgasbord religion. Well, it's like, uh, what was his name, Louis Agassiz? who uh, was one of the great Harvard scientists of more than a century ago. And at one time, some boys in his neighborhood got together several bugs of bumblebee and a number of other things, and very cleverly, they took them apart and pieced various pieces together and glued them and took it to the professor to show him a new kind of bug they had found. Well, the old man, the scientist, looks at the bug and the students want to know, is this a new bug? What kind is it? And they looked at him and they said, it's a humbug. <laughs> now, some of the Christian theologies you meet, when you look at them, with their piecemeal things, you'll have to say sometimes that's humbug theology. Mm -hmm. Yes. I tell you, first of the cafeteria, down here, I heard uh, Paul in Acts 17, there's a certain report that said. Yes. Now, what he did was to take the remark of a we pull out of context just to be able to challenge them. Paul was a highly educated man. He knew their language. He commanded their attention. But why did they then leave him? Wanted to hear no more of them. Because instead of talking about God as the ground of being, the limiting concept as it was in Greek philosophy, he said, this God in whom we live and move and have our being is the God who is the judge of all. Your judge, my judge, the Lord of all. Therefore, they left him and said, really, here is something more about this than another time. They wanted no more of that, you see. But that wasn't uh, Margaret's Lord theology he preached. It was just a way of capturing their attention, saying, look, boys, I speak your language, but I know the inadequacy of what you have to say. Now, all we have is a synopsis there of his lecture. And I have no doubt that St. Paul began, after that statement, to critique the whole of their philosophy, to show its inadequacy. Because they talked about an unknown God 
or more accurately, an unknowable God, you see, to the unknowable God, who could not reveal himself, because he couldn't express himself, he was incoherent, he was just a blind natural force in being. So he made clear, having declared, this unknowable God is worthless, but there is the living God, who is the Lord of all, and is your just. So that's a very different thing. He smashed their whole system. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, now there's, uh, I know we very carefully draw the distinction between, say, the, you know, theology and, uh, the theological approach and that matter, as opposed to, say, biblical. Mm-hmm. And they would, you know, put that into the realize that theology is a, uh, uh, theoretical, you know, handling of scripture. And so they would, you see what I'm saying? So the problem, I was talking to John C. Vanderbilt in that door university. And I never, you know, I was unfamiliar with a lot of things when I got to talk to and he and I were coming from two different places. And but he had a very, you know, he was very, uh, he was on my case. Because the way I used theology, and I was using it someone like you were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy, he was very opposed to that. And I remember, I think, during, uh, Evan Runner's book on, uh, education, he goes in, and I think he makes that point. Mm-hmm. He talks about theology and the science, and they get these things that the kids run differently than he just did. Yes, because, you see, the whole Toronto School of Thought does not hold to the infallible word. They do not believe in the doctrine of creation. They're not reformed. They call themselves reformational. In other words, as society and culture and man changes, you continue changing and reforming things in terms of the new word that comes to you. So, it is not theology which governs them. In fact, if you push them, they are hostile to theology as the queen of the sciences. Philosophy is. Yeah, I know, yeah, I find, I've done a lot of hospitals that way, but also, at some point, I find, you know, they uh, don't have a definition. Mm-hmm. Now, with some, theology will have a place, but with them, it is speculative theology, and we don't believe in speculative theology, we believe in biblical theology. We don't believe that we have the right to speculate and to create theology out of our minds. It is a biblically required theology that we can alone profess and adhere to and believe. Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary where he he differentiates, contrasts theological faith or speculative faith from saving or evangelical faith. That's a tremendous contrast in the position. Well, Noah Webster, you know, was a thoroughly reformed believer. Yes, he was. I have two questions. Yes. And uh, one is, I want to make a short statement and ask you to comment on it. I went back to school ten years ago to get my credential in biology because I'd finished my pre-med account and I'd been in the Navy and I'd been in business 20 years after. And uh, I became so disturbed because I had to take a few general science, co- I'm sorry, general ed courses. Mm-hmm. I had to take foreign affairs and uh, intellectual history of the United States and 
a whole lot of these human courses in which the whole background of America's founding and America's education and America's uh, goal and purpose was, was ridiculed and downgraded and altered and subtly changed by, by these young PhD humans. And so I actually changed my major of education. In fact, this people I into biology, I changed my major. I didn't really change my major. I started doing independent study of history, government, economics. Mm-hmm. And that's where I came across your book, Messianic Character, mm-hmm. American Education. And I, I believe this to be the truth. I mean the fact about education, especially in the higher grades, and I know it starts in kindergarten and before, and I talked to you about this privately just a moment ago, that the basic theological teaching of the Bible, which upon which all other doctrines depend, and upon which all education and truth depends, is the first biblical doctrine of the gospel, mm-hmm. which you just mentioned, mm-hmm. which is creation. Yeah, right. And, and without creation, we don't have any other doctrine. You have a false doctrine of God and a false doctrine of man without a sound doctrine of creation. Yes. Emphatically, that's true. Now, the second question has to do with a more personal thing, and you may choose not to answer it, or... Um, I... Well, it's about a subject, it's about a lecture, a seminar we just heard last weekend, mm-hmm. uh, by a man who is rather renowned in certain circles, and I'm... Uh, you're, I'm sure you know his books, The God Who Is There, and mm-hmm. Escape From Reason, and so forth. And after this interesting presentation in which he speaks of Christian absolutes, and the absolute sovereign God, and the creator God, and the men falling away from us, and the people going into, leaving the Christian census, and going into uh, this whole humanist Greek mix-up thing like he just spoke of, mm-hmm. when someone asked the young man the question, how do you know, or why do you believe the Bible to be true? There was quite an interesting answer, and I'd like to hear yours now. Why do you believe the Bible to be the truth? Why do you believe it's from God and it's absolute truth? Because it is and must be the basic presupposition of my faith. I do not prove it to be true. I prove all things in terms of the Word of God. I do not come to judge whether it is true or not. I judge whether all things are true in terms of the word of God. In other words, it is my starting point. I do not sit in judgment upon it. It sits in judgment upon me. Would you like to make a few comments regarding the the theology that, that you at least that Dr. Schaefer's had in, from his law briefing, and how sound it is for a reconstruction. He speaks of a return. He doesn't speak of Christian reconstruction, mm-hmm. I believe. He used a phrase which I've forgotten. Do you remember what it was? Return to Well, yes, back to the Reformation ideas mm-hmm. of the Renaissance, but Christian reconstruction, I believe. I'm not sure I can comment because uh, I know Francis Schaefer and I like him, I respect him, uh, he is on our mailing list. I've read some of his things, but I haven't followed his thinking that closely. Now, uh, one of our Calcedon scholars, Greg Bronson, is going to give some pages to him in a study of Van Till and his critics. Uh, I'm not sure what Greg Bronson will say, but when that is out, which I hope it will be next year, it will represent a very close and careful study. 
So, uh, I'd rather not give an off-the-cuff remark, and I have not uh, read him that closely. Well, I was very impressed, and I think most of you who heard him was very impressed with his presentation. However, I believe that a good bit of what he said in a kind of a low-key way so that it wouldn't offend anyone, uh, was so powerful that it should have been delivered in a more powerful voice. And that had to do with what Christians have done in their, mm-hmm. in their turning into, uh, under faith, being yeah. turned into fables and, and, and personal peace and affluence were the phrases that he was supposed Well, Van Till apparently has written something on, uh, Francis Schaeffer and, and thinks very highly of him and regrets that there are points of differences and he believes points of departure between them. But uh, with all due respect to Francis Schaeffer, and I am grateful for the good that he has done, I really am not that uh, cognizant of his thinking in detail to uh, comment on it. I've read three or four of his books, but very hurriedly when I've been traveling, and uh, I simply wouldn't be competent okay. to uh, comment on them. Yes. Just a, a quickie on the Toronto and that for one thing they made. It's, uh, where there's a kind of a petition in the Toronto. Now, is he himself really drinking the fountain of philosophy or theology? Yes. Uh, Gouvert, for a time, was moving in the same direction as Van Hill, but he definitely has chosen philosophy as prior to theology. Toronto exaggerates the faults and weaknesses of Duvivier. They exaggerate them. The faults of uh, Yes, and weaknesses, the lacks, the shortcomings. Any other questions? Well, the last yeah. one was on the and the kind of very much you said about your not coming right now and so forth. dominion and to subdue the earth. 
to bring every area of life and thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. So, uh, the duties are ours, the results are in the hands of God. But the total God makes a total requirement. We cannot say that there is any area of life that is not to be brought into captivity to Christ. To do so is to deny the gospel. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Now, Buswell, of course, was rationalistic in his uh, philosophy. So naturally, he has ultimately limited God and exalted man. He's made man judge over God in his philosophical premises. Yes. Something that I've read quite a few Schaefer's books, and I think the major error of Schaefer is that he emphasizes culture. I got that when I was first a Christian reading him. I came to a conviction about culture, but he never told me anything about what he believed as far as theology. You see, culture comes out of Calvinistic theology, and I never learned anything about Calvinism from Francis Schaefer. And, and I think what, you know, might be interesting is, would you define just what you mean when somebody is a reformed Christian? Like, I see everybody around here, you know, I'm reformed, you know, I'm a Calvinist. And what does that mean to you? A reformed Christian is one who believes in the sovereignty of God, not only under salvation, but with respect to every area of life and his duty to serve, obey, and to magnify the Lord by exercising dominion in every area of life and asserting the crown rights of King Jesus over the totality of all things. Sir? Yes. Uh, I Originally, the original revelation of God they had was for man to have dominion. And when Adam fell, then redemption was given. Uh, and if you view redemption as being only for redemption of the sinner without the restoration of the original mandate for him to have dominion, then his revelation becomes man-centered. A revelation can never become man-centered because it's always God-centered. So redemption it always returns to return man to his original dominion path, the original revelation. But with Paul Bannett, you're cultural, huh? I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you're sick of him. You can introduce us somewhere that, that, that law is not God's that understands by God, and there's no in between. I certainly can't argue with that. And Genesis 128, etc. Uh, but as far as this trust, of a, of Paul and the Bible. He's got a culture turnaround, man. He's a, you know, based on the, the gospel. That's what I'm yeah, saying. All right. But you see, you're thinking of culture in a humanistic sense. What does the Soviet Union mean by culture? No, it means, oh, uh, wait, all right, wait a minute. I'll come to that. The Soviet Union by culture means an opera house in every small community and, uh, Bolshoi dance team performing there and artists uh, having their displays so that people can say, you see, we Soviet people are not barbarians, we have culture. And humanists in various forms define it the same way. Talk to any humanist by culture and he means the art gallery and the opera association and the symphony orchestra and so on. 
Now, what is culture really? It is simply religion externalized. Religion externalized. Well, don't we believe in that? If you have a faith, it's going to show. Culture has to do with our education. What are Christian schools? Christian culture. And the I impose the Christian culture on the non-Christian world. I want to try to make the law of God reign as much as I can, because mm-hmm. I'm really a very law of God. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the devil will say you can't make any general man obey the word of God. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. The word of God is, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. You're imposing that on maybe a hundred million non-Christians in the United States today, if not 150 million. But you are. They're not killing. What does the Bible say in Romans 13? The power of the civil magistrate is to be a terror to evildoers. What is the evildoer obeying? Even in a non-Christian state, he's obeying the word of God, that thou shalt not kill. Well, should I say that? I was saying in the first of Paul was kind of, I'm not just trying to be that, mm-hmm. that narrow evangelist. Mm-hmm. But Paul is not talking self-determinant. He's saying, he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about the church, the elect, and the life, nothing over. Yes. He's talking about culture because he's talking about a faith that acts, that lives. Within the people of God. But if it acts within the people of God, it's going to act on everyone around them. But he did his work with the men. I read this morning again. Among the Gentiles. All right. So forth. By the end of the Gospel canon. There were 500,000 Christians in the world. Some, a majority, within the Roman Empire. That's the estimate of scholars and as a result of considerable research and some guesswork. Those people were shaking the Roman Empire. Now, the multi-millions of Rome were being shaken by a handful. Why? Because just as today the ungodly are destroying themselves, they're suicidal, they cannot create order, they're destroying it. The order that was created by Christians in this country, they are destroying. Who alone supplies order? Why? It's the people of God. One of the most interesting experiences I had in this regard was on an Indian reservation where I began my pastor for eight and a half years. We had something like 55 Christians out of about 950 Indians. Not many. But what was the situation? When the pagan Indians predominated, and they were real pagans, you see, we had a total breakdown. The lawlessness that would prevail would be such that it would become impossible. And what would they do? In desperation, they would turn around and elect the Christians. So you'd have a Christian tribal council. Immediately, you'd have strict law and order. Everything would be good. 
and everybody would be saving their money and not blowing it on drinks, and the nicenes would stop. And after a while, they'd get fretful. Just too much trouble to be so well behaved. And they'd vote out the Christians, and they'd be down in the gutter again, and in desperation, they'd vote the Christians back in. I saw it happen over and over again. Now, if we'd had twice as many Christians, we could have held it there. It doesn't take a majority. History has never been commanded by a majority, never, only by dedicated minorities. And if we had had twice as many Christians, we could have created an order there that they could not have turned around. It would have created a situation whereby we could have better reached the children. When things would go downhill, kids of, by the fourth grade were drunk and were alcoholics. And I mean that literally. We see the potentiality whereby the Christian is called in our Lord's words. The salt of the earth. What would salt do? Not a flavoring in Bible times. It was a preserving agent. Especially in the Holy Land where you had heat all through the summer. You had mild winters. How did you preserve me? Salting it. When I was on the Indian Reservation, at first before Idaho Power came in there, how did I keep me salting it? I'd go fishing in the summer, for example, and I'd get a lot of trout, and I'd put it in a salt brine, pack it with uh, rock salt, and after I cleaned it, and put it in this salt brine. Keep it to use any time during the winter. Salt was the preserving music. So our Lord said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its function, no longer good for anything, but to be trodden underfoot by men. Because what would I do with that barn? I wouldn't put it out in the garden. It damaged the garden. I put it on the pathway. Because nothing grew there anyway, or on the driveway. So, God says, if you don't function that way, if your faith is not externalized, if it doesn't have a cultural manifestation, Culture is simply religion externalized. That's what it is. What? Then we are trodden underfoot of men because God says, you're worthless. So how can we keep on pouring money in the church building so with all our technology in the world still in use for the God? That's a little bit similar to the first slide. That's a long set of coffee. I don't even know. That's all I'm going to make you point. How can we keep on with just the are interested, make a primary interest almost to turn around society or permeate culture. The church would be a salt regardless of this to do well. Church. Well, we have all this technology and all these unreached masses. How can you keep on building big churches or just keeping it in place? If you build church buildings, they're worthless unless there's a faith that is proclaimed in those churches. But you need a tool to produce. A building is a tool if it's properly used. You see, you need a building for a Christian school. It's a tool, like pencils, blackboards, desks, chairs. 
It's the tool for production. I meant the ornate, you know, the elaborate. Oh, what's wrong with the ornate? The Bible commands that things that are in the Lord's tabernacle be for beauty and glory. Now, you dress well. Why shouldn't the house of God be dressed well? Well, that's not the point. You dress to put on a good appearance, to make an impression, a favorable one, one that won't be demeaning to your person, to the family, to the faith, to the church, the school, whatever you represent. You see? All right. The church building is not to be for the glory of man, but for the glory of God. No, I, I think that we've gone too far in the direction of making the churches as plain and as ugly and as cheap as possible, as though God is going to be grateful for that. We make sure we live in a comfortable home. But the house of God, let it be an iron store. I don't see that. I think the Christian church, the Christian school, should show the fact that we have a mighty God who's here to stay. Not here today, gone tomorrow. Let's see. I reacted to my Dutch, my Dutch brethren at Westminster, and I mean to the reform theology at first, and I hope I have some degree of challenge my blood by another. But uh, I heard them talking to me either culture, from or what, what. But I find Paul, you know, I wish that all men were as high as these bonds. You know, I and mean, there is this evangelistic thing that has to somehow, I haven't asked the question that I get, there is that attention which I see where you're coming from. Somehow, these systematically related. And in between this repetition here, I hear the voice of Mr. Powell, I believe, still coming out. And that is that the culture that you're speaking about, I easily understand, to be that culture that is, that is, comes out of the salt, out of the true conversion, out of the true redemption, right. Right. and not out of show or out of a speculative faith that, that, that wants the praise of men. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and here we've got two things, and, 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 and it still goes back to it. The sovereignty of God must be first exercised and manifested in the redemption of men. And if you're going to have Christians who are going to to put on this cultural mandate, and that's not probably the right term because you explained that uh, it's not the right. But anyway, if they're going to really exercise it in the schools and every facet of life, then they're going to have to be Christians who are redeemed Christians, not Christians, quote, unquote, that have a theological speculative faith. And when I heard the, the answer to that question, and I didn't explain it to the other people here, when he gave me his definition of why you believe the Bible, you contrast that with young Schaefer's definition, I brought it to the bar of my reason, and it's logical, and it works for me, and this kind of thing. And, and he, everything was to the bar of his reason. And that was the most shocking uh, revelation when he answered that 5,800 people, and all we got was the bar of him. Mm -hmm. Is it the next? Young Schaefer, thank you. Mm -hmm. So that's why I Yes. You know, Paul in Romans 1 also says this, and lists a whole list of things, and he talks it off with another thing. He says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, that the people in the Old Testament who committed certain sins, they were death. The, these sins, they list, were worthy of death. He says, 
not always do the same, but have pleasure in them to do it. They sit by and they say, well, the whole world's going to hell and that's all right. That's sin. Mm-hmm. See, for me to sit here and say, if I read Romans 1 correctly, and say, hey, it's all right for me not to exercise dominion and not to bring use God's law in society mm-hmm. and in school and family, is I'm committing a sin which I have to mm-hmm. repent of. I believe God is going to destroy Soviet culture, American culture, whatever is humanistic in the way of culture, but that he requires us to create a Christian culture, which is simply our faith externalized and manifesting itself 